Welcome to the Brew Files from Experimental Brewing, our quick hit series where we focus on fundamental aspects of brewing, including styles, techniques, and recipes. More brew, more flavor, more stories, less time, and less ukulele. In this episode, it's time for a two-parter. I'm talking with Scott Janish, co-founder of Sapwood Settlers, and more importantly, the author of the new IPA. He's been diving deep into the latest hopper research and trying to make it approachable for the rest of us. In this first part, we talk Scott's background, his passion for hops, and lay out what we need to know about hop chemistry before we head into part two. Now, warning, this one is going to sound a little different, including questions on the fly, because I recorded this as part of the Maltos Falcons August Virtual Club meeting. So before we get in there, a message from our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by the American Homebrewers Association, a group of more than 40,000 individuals from more than 70 countries who share a passion for brewing and enjoying great beer. Learn more at homebrewersassociation.org. Family-owned Atlantic Brew Supply is the biggest homebrew shop in the Southeast. No gimmicks, no multinational corporate overlords, and no BS. Unique ingredients from local suppliers, including malt from neighboring Artisan Malt House Epiphany Craft Malts and award-winning recipe kits, including the Toll, Raleigh Brewing Company's GABF-winning Imperial Oatmeal Stout. Plus, we've got pro-level equipment and the best-in-cask supply equipment from sister companies ABS Commercial and Cask Supply. Malts, extracts, and more, all available by the ounce, an on-site calculator to help you craft your best brew, same-day order processing, and guaranteed two-day shipping for East Coast customers. Get 15% off your first order when you use the coupon code BREWFILES at checkout at Atlantic Brew Supply. Getting accurate measurements of your beer is one of the keys to improving your brewing. The Pro Series hydrometers from Brewing America will help you help your beer. These American-made NIST traceable hydrometers are accurate, easy to read, and the kits come with a cleaning brush and cloth and a borosilicate test flask that uses half the sample size of most flasks. That means less beer for testing and more beer for you. Brewing America is a small, family-owned business of husband and wife veterans, so when you buy a Brewing America hydrometer, you're not only getting a great piece of equipment, you're supporting the people who support America. Brewing America hydrometers are available on Amazon or at www.brewingamerica.com. Hi, Scott. How's it going? Thanks for having me. <laughs> well, why don't, we, why don't we start off? Why don't you tell the gang your your kind of your bio? You know, the you know all the basics. You know, how'd you get into brewing? Yeah, the the, the short bio is um, I've been a, a beer blogger for a while. Um, I've I've just blogged under the very creative title of scottjanish.com for a while. Two years ago, opened up uh, a brewery with uh, a good friend Michael Tomsmeyer, which is uh, Sapwood Cellars, which is in columbia maryland and really before that my my work life was a, a lobbyist in dc which I'm, I'm very glad to to not be doing anymore but i, I got into brewing the, uh, the the similar fashion as you know, i think most people i just was i was gifted one of those uh homebrew kits that you do at home on the stove and 
and like everyone, it, it just kind of becomes something that you're like, oh my God, I can make beer at home to, well, for me anyways, to, to blogging about it and to eventually writing a, a book and then opening a brewery. So it's been a hobby turned, hobby turned business for me. So that's kind of the, the, short, the short bio. In that world of you brewing, what have been your favorite things to brew? You know, I was pretty focused on one style all the time. Like I was brewing hoppy beers from the start. I brewed one lager in my, in my career as a home brewer. For me, it was really trying to nail and, and figure out um, one style. And I think that obsession kind of shows if you, if you look at some of my writing. Because I think your writing on the blog and your obsession there turned into that book that you've written that I'm currently reading. So what actually drew you to write a book? And did Mike require that you write a book before you guys partner? (laughs) No, but in fact, uh, I I went over to his place when I was thinking about writing the book um, just to kind of get his his opinion and and his thoughts while, you know, because of course he wrote... uh, uh, American sour beers. So I was getting his opinion on whether or not it, he thought it was worth it. And that's when we started talking about opening a brewery um, was actually that night. So, but, but the book was really just a, a slow sort of uh, next step from, from a lot of my blog posts. I started getting really into academic literature of, of brewing. I thought it was an area of kind of untouched resource for a lot of brewers. I mean, if at the time I was, I was browsing around on, um, you know, brewing forums. And that was kind of where I was getting all of my, my information. And I was just struck by how many studies are out there and how many I thought were, you know, pretty much going unnoticed. Um, and the more I sort of pieced them together and the more I, I read them, I realized there was a ton of information out there that I thought brewers could start applying or at least use for um, inspiration to try new things. Um, and so that, that's, that's kind of how I started writing. I started um, when if a research paper kind of got me excited about an idea or concept, I would um, write up what you know the what I learned from that paper, and then I would, I would brew a post or two, or I would brew a beer at, at home to kind of test the research a little bit, and then um, I'd write a blog post about it. And I just kept kind of doing that for a while, and then I, I I realized that there was so much information out there that maybe there was enough to to fill the pages of a book, and finally did. It took me a couple of years, but I finally got it. Well, and that's interesting because, uh, I mean, I've said this before that home brewing and, I mean, actually even craft brewing in general is traditions-based. There's a lot of knowledge that's just handed down. And this is the way I was supposed to brew this because this is the way I was taught how to brew. What's your background that allowed you to go dig into some of those scientific papers to you know, and those studies to start pulling things out? Because I go and I read some stuff. Some of it I can understand and some of it's Latin. <laughs> you know, I don't have a background in it. Uh, you know, like I said, I was a, a political science major and I spent most of my time you know, trying to convince uh, Republicans on the Hill to pass financial uh, consumer uh, financial protections, which was a, a, a tough, uh, a tough job. And so like I, I had experience, you know, reading legislation and, and laws and, and, and that kind of stuff. But um, really, I think that's it was just pure interest in the subject that really got me um, to dive into these. And, and honestly, I, I would reach out to the authors all the time um, of these papers and and I would say, you know, this is what I'm understanding from this. Um, is that, you know, in my understanding your work correctly, uh, I would ask them some questions, uh, some follow-up questions. And um, a lot of times they would give me guidance on, uh, on an experiment to try or something from it. So um, it was a, a slow process of, of, of learning some of the terminology. But then I would just, you know, I would ask a bunch of questions. People underestimate how 
how pleased authors are to actually hear back from people who are reading their stuff and asking questions because it means somebody actually listened to the stuff that they were writing. Yeah, you know? I mean, I, I some of these uh, websites have like view counts on the on the papers, and you'd be amazed how few people are reading. You know, there's you know I don't know how many breweries there are eight thousand plus now. How many home brewers? And then you, you know, an amazing paper comes out on, you know, brewing hoppy beer is one of the most popular in the, in the world. And there's like a couple hundred people that read the paper. It just, it blows my mind sometimes. So um, I kind of, I see myself as like a liaison in some way to uh, some of this work, um, trying to, trying to relate it from the scientific side to the practical side. And, and sometimes it doesn't even matter. I mean, sometimes there's a lot of great research in you. Um, adjust your style or experiment with stuff and you know if you can't taste or smell it it's not it's not really worth it but it was um an uh, area to at least uh adventure towards you know something to try for people who want to follow in your footsteps and, and hopefully bump up some of those view counts yeah where, where, where have been some of the big uh, resources that you found good information from uh the the two biggest maybe three uh asbs seed so that they have um, a big journal um, that you have to apply for, or not apply for, but just be a member of. I think it's a yeah, couple the, bucks a month. Yeah, the American Society of Brewing Chemists. Yeah, thank you. And then uh, Brewing Science is another one. There's there's no space in there. It's just Brewing Science, and they, they publish a whole bunch of papers, too. Um, mm-hmm. And I really like the stuff that they've been doing. And they, they every year they have, they send out like a, a paperback version of all their, their journal um, as well. And so I, those are my, those are my two favorite. Um, but otherwise, you know, Google scholar is a great, a great place to mm-hmm. um, um, whether or not you're, you know, put up key searches or key hits when there's new studies that come out that you might get alerted to, or just searching the, the incredible history of, of academic papers that's out there. One of the ones that uh, surprised me was, you know, everybody's been talking about hop group. Right, and we, and we just had we just had some uh, hop creep discussion earlier, and you can actually go back and you can dig into like Wiley and whatnot and find papers from the 1950s that yeah, you know, were man. all about hop creep. They're talking about hop creep way back in the day. I believe it was when uh, they were putting hops in in cask and they were seeing refermentation. Yeah, but we forgot about that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. That hop creep was an amazing subject because you know it, it pretty much went. Like no one talked about it at all until I believe it was Allagash that started to have problems with you know a hoppy table beer, and they really dug in and, and started um, kind of laying the groundwork for the new wave of of uh, research into that into that area. But um, I think it was just kind of a the progression of how hops were are, are made for how brewers want to use them, um, as well as just the heavy hopping rates and and timing that brewers started switching to, but. Uh-huh. When we talk about hop creep, what we're talking about is it turns out that when you dry hop, particularly with a lot of hops, hops actually have some diastatic power to them. They can actually take some of the residual sugars that are left in your beer and allow those to break them down just like what we do in the mash and break them down enough that the yeast can actually kind of pick up and referment and do some funny things. So if you've ever had an IPA that seems a little extra fizzy and maybe a little diastole probably due to some hop creep issues yeah and it, it, it it's interesting because uh, especially in like hazy uh, ipas where you're, you're you're trying to a lot of times you're, you're trying to leave a lot more dextrins behind you know dextrins are the unfermentable sugars and if you have these if you're dry hopping warm especially and then you have um the enzymes from these hops start breaking down some of these dextrins into fermentable sugars well if you have the ability to crash the yeast for example 
there's hardly any yeast in there. And now all of a sudden there's new sugars to eat. And then the re-fermentation is really unhealthy. And then that's what can create diacetyl or just, you know, more fermentation than you want. So there's a handful of ways to kind of deal with it, but generally cooler, um, cooler dry hopping, shorter durations um, is, a, is a good way to, to, to uh, try to avoid it. I think home brewers don't have to worry about it as much um, because you're generally keeping your beers cold in a keg after you package it and, and you're not going to see much re-fermentation. Well, and actually, so we'll get into the, the cold dry hopping uh, in a bit because that's a technique I've been playing around with and loving. We've talked about what draws you to, to hops and hop chemistry, uh, but let's actually talk first. What do you think about the whole idea of like, you know, the hazy versus the West Coast thing? You know, and <laughs> where, where do you fall on that? Because I know you have a lot of hazies on your blog. I do. It's kind of funny is when I, I think one of the most popular uh, recipes on my blog is actually a West Coast IPA recipe, believe it or not. I never really tried to brew hazy beers from the, from the beginning. Um, in fact, I, if I go through some of my, um, when I was sending beers to competitions um, back, you know, five, six years ago, a lot of them would come back super high and like hop. Uh, the the aroma is great, the hop saturated flavor is great, but then I would get docked on appearance because they were hazy. It just wasn't wasn't something you were supposed to do then, um, and it wasn't something super intentional. And it was obviously you know trying to chase some of the the other big names that were some of the big breweries that were doing stuff like that. But it wasn't a clear understanding of of what was going on or, or why it was happening. So. For me, you know, now there's a clear difference between West Coast IPAs and, and New England IPAs. But at the time, I was just brewing hoppy beer, if that makes sense. I wasn't really trying to target um, a specific one, which is the good and bad of, of brewing for competitions is you kind of have to brew to style, but you, you can't always uh, brew to palate. What, I think on a BGSP score sheet, appearance is a total of three points, uh, which, you know, shouldn't knock you out of the running. It doesn't do too much, yeah. Except for then you get docked elsewhere because judges are like, Rrr! yeah, <laughs> um, you offended them with appearance. Exactly. Well, obviously it's dirty beer because it looks dirty. So now, what do you see different as about the hopping choices that you have to make for this world of hazies versus, say, the world of West Coast? Do you, or do you see any? You know, West Coast IPAs are still. I mean, you look at like Pliny and stuff like those are still heavily dry hop beers. They're just you know a little more classic varieties for the most part you know a little anchor a little more herbal using different yeast strains too i think you know those beers um, there's a lot of reasons why i believe beers get hazy um but i i think the west coast ipas are you know they're a little less proteins you're, you're having a a grist that's a little more you know able to to drop clear um, you're using yeast strains that drop a little clear um you know a little more neutral in that way where New England IPAs are generally English style uh, strains that um, you know might have a little ester uh, character, um, which which can be good and bad depending on what you're after. Um, but this, despite you know being advertised as really flocculent strains, when when these strains are in the presence, usually it's the top cropping strains when, when they're in the presence of um, hops, especially it seems even high total oil hops um, uh, post fermentation, they really just create a haze. And of course, there's other um, factors that play into that, but um, yeah, I mean the the hopping. There's West Coast are having a lot more hot side hops early, so you're just getting more uh, just b- bitterness built into those beers. And where the focus, of course, on Eng- uh, New England IPAs is, you know, still a, a heavy amount of hops, but super late in the process. Um, generally, even chilling your beer before adding a lot of those hops. So you're, the goal is is hop flavor over uh, bitterness. 
Well, and that brings up the other point, because one of the other big debates is, how much kettle bitterness are you trying to get when you're making one of your hazies? You know, I'm not a too, you know, in, in, even at Sapwood, I think we're, we're probably on the higher range for um, hot side hops than most. Um, I, I always say one of my biggest complaints with uh, most New England IPAs is that there's not enough um, hot side hopping, which not necessarily means not enough bitterness, but just not enough of this hop saturated flavor that you need to balance the heavy, heavy dry hopping. Um, it's my experience. If you're drinking a New England IPA, that's like really, really green, really astringent. Um, it's, it's generally, I think because there wasn't enough hops in the whirlpool to really balance that you're, you're just loading it up in the, in the dry hop and you're just getting sort of this general green character and not necessarily the varietal specific hop character. You're getting more like tannins and, and plant material. Yeah, exactly. For whatever reason, they just seem to extract at a higher rate in those beers where there's not a lot of hot side hopping. And um, that could be because, you know, when you're in dry hopping, actually the, the vegetal material itself in hops is pulling out some of the uh, isomerized alpha acids mm-hmm. um, from, from the hot side. And so you're, you're kind of doing a replace, uh, a swap and replace thing when, you, when you're dry hopping. And if there's nothing there to really replace, I think you're just kind of loading it up with these um, greener, greener flavors. But for, for us, um, we're, we're using close to what is about two pounds per barrel in the, um, whirlpool. Um, mm-hmm. and so that's about, I believe five or six ounces for a five gallon batch. And we're most of the time cooling to about 180 degrees before we're adding, um, adding our whirlpool hops. Um, and right. we, we don't add, I mean, I think the original question is like, how many IBUs are we kind of shooting for? Um, we don't really add, hardly any at the start. Um, and I think this is where homebrewers kind of have an advantage because we have to chill our beer through our heat exchanger and go back into our kettle um, in order to get it from 212 to, to 180. Um, and you can't have hops go through your, your heat exchanger. You'll, you'll, you'll clog it up. We're usually adding hops in the mash early. Um, and that's, that's a separate kind of issue. That's more of a beer stability thing. Um, alpha acids from, Hops actually have the ability to complex problematic metals like iron and copper um, that can cause oxidation later down down the road. So we usually um, divert a, a little bit of our uh, whirlpool hops to our, ke- our mash hop, and then we're, we're generally not adding any more hops until knockout, but then we just slam it with as many as we can kind of uh, pack in there without, without issues. You know, it, it, it's fun because one of the things we do a lot is try as many different hot side hops as we can. It just seems like there's there's so many different varieties that don't do anything. I mean, if you taste your beer pre-dry hopping, I think that's the best time to to see whether or not you got any flavor from your hot side hopping. You know, you should smell a little bit of hoppiness and maybe taste a little flavor at that point. Um, but there's just some varieties that just seem to, um, you know, they'll, they'll do their job in terms of bitterness, but in terms of flavor and aroma, they're just completely gone after, after the um, knockout and fermentation. Um, and there's other varieties that just seem to have more more flavor and intensity. I think we'll talk about one of your one of your favorites here in a moment. Uh, just take a brief break because we did have a couple questions come in. Do you have a recommendation for the amount of hops that you add to the mash? Um, so let's see. We're doing. We'll usually do a couple pounds, and so that's for a ten barrel batch. Um, so I, I think maybe an ounce or two is probably plenty. Just okay. to, just to toss in there. I mean, really, you're just trying to get some some alpha and beta acids into that into that mash, and and. It, you know, it's, it's more of a, an insurance. So, I mean, it, let's say you have, um, 
a bag or two that you, uh, from the previous brew that's just kind of in your freezer that you, you're probably not even going to use. Just, I would just toss those in. Um, it's more of a, why not? If it helps, it helps type of thing. And, and like we say, it smells good too. Everybody forgets, you know, it's important to make a, a wonderful aromatic environment. So your beer is happy because the brewer is happy. <laughs> that's, that's a good point. And the other question that came in, uh, when you, when you're doing that whirlpool, just to uh, be able to go through the heat exchanger and come back into the kettle. What temperature are you shooting for in the kettle? Uh, about 180 usually. Um, so it just kind of how it works for us is we knock we knock our kettle down to 170, and then um, it slowly it rises another 10 degrees, uh, just the physics of, of the kettle. Um, so we're, we're generally shooting for around 180 degrees, and we do a 20-minute uh, whirlpool, and then we... Uh, we'll do about a uh, twenty-minute rest. If we ever go even colder in the in the whirlpool, we'll extend the the length a little bit more. But this is just chasing uh, some some science that just kind of shows, and, and it kind of makes sense that the the slightly slight um, colder temperatures you retain a little more um, hop uh, volatiles than you do at warmer temperatures, and that and, you know that just kind of makes sense. You know, there's more steam, there's more things kind of pushing it out. Um, and so that's, that's kind of what we're after. And you see some of those studies where people are trying to even push all the way down to, I think like 140 or something, just to try and get below the, the most minimum volatilization temperature. The, the one study that I always point to on this, and I, and I wish there was a few more because it, I find this one pretty interesting. It was, I believe they tested at like 200, 180 and 160. The, the slightly warmer was a little more fruity or tropical kind of flavors with more of the, uh, monoterpene alcohols that you're after in the actual beer and then even at like 160 they started to just get less extraction of some of these mm-hmm. and the, what they did get was more of like a, a herbal sort of green character from it so um I, I would love to see this tested again going down all the way to like 140 just to, I, the science is always slightly behind brewers which is just kind of how how it is um but there's that's the fun part is brewers can kind of you know, you know push the direction of where some of this um some of this goes and so I have a whole list of stuff I would love to see, love to see studied in a perfect world. There, you go. well, and I just wanted to clarify before we move on, though. Uh, you said a twenty-minute whirlpool at about one hundred and eighty, and then a twenty-minute rest afterwards. So is that forty minutes total time yeah, on the hops? Forty minutes total time, and then um, for us, it takes you know about you know fifty minutes or so to actually to knock out because we have right. about 200, 400 gallons. Well, and I think that's the thing that homebrewers often forget is. You know, like when they read things about like professional breweries doing like a 20 minute mash or something like that, they're forgetting that there's all that extra time while, you know, you're trying to warm up this mass of liquid, this, you know, that is way more than we have to deal with. Yeah, exactly. And I think if I was, if I was um, homebrewing these same beers, I think I would, I would probably just do a 20 minute whirlpool and then a knockout. Um, I think there, there's some, of the, the research actually shows a lot of times right when you're adding these hops to the whirlpool, they're, they're extracting almost peak almost right away. I mean, the, the, the war is, is hot enough where it's just ex- extracting quickly. And usually the smaller, the, um, the batch too, you get more extraction and that kind of goes the same for dry hopping as well. On the homebrew scale, I think, you know, there's no reason to mimic what, what professional brewers are doing necessarily because for us, it's just, it's just the, how it works with that much volume. Um, you could probably save yourself some time and do it, do it a little quicker, I think. Right. I know we got, we've got two big things that we want to talk about. 
and then we're playing around with some of this early, but I think before we get there, we have to actually talk a little bit of Hoff chemistry, but because otherwise I don't think people are going to be able to get the full knowledge, right, or, or the full understanding. Just briefly, we know that hops are made up of a million and one things, like all these different chemical compounds. For years, homebrewers have only ever really worried about, and actually a lot of professional brewers have only really worried about alpha acids, and then suddenly beta acids became important for people to start paying attention to. But now there's all this other stuff that, that people have been talking about now, hydrocarbons, terpenes, thiols, esters, fatty acids. What do we need to know? <laughs> yeah, just like you said, like early on it was, you know, like total oil, um, and then you're looking at your, your alpha acids for how much bitterness you might pick up. In terms of bittering acids, it's still, you know, the alpha acids and beta acids are, are important. Um, the new one now um, to look at is uh, humulones. Um, in terms of bittering acids. And this is uh, something that actually extracts very efficiently on the cold side. And these are uh, an oxidized product um, on hops. Um, So these are what can actually make your beer um, bitter during dry hopping because they extract so quickly and they're about 66% as bitter as a um, isomerized alpha acid. Yeah, we talked about that a little bit in the IBOs Alive where, uh, yeah, your dry hopping is actually adding bitterness, surprisingly. (laughs) Yeah, it, it, and it's more of, you know, like the IBU test is still very useful for repeatability, right? I mean, mm-hmm. um, if you if you know what your beer tastes like and, and you're a smith from, you know, however many Whirlpool hops you used and your bittering charge, say it says it's 100 IBUs, um, you can keep reproducing that beer based off that IBU number. Um, but if you were to actually send your beer to a lab and have it, um, you know, tested through, uh, you know, it's called HPLC, and I'm not a scientist, so I don't know exactly what that machine does, but <laughs> it uh, it can distinguish the different alpha or the different um, acids in the in the beer. So the IBU test is is telling you how many how bitter your beer is based off of you know, just looking at bittering acids as a whole. Where is if you if you look closer with with better equipment, you can distinguish which bittering acids are actually in the beer. So then you can see, oh, there's so many uh, isomerized alpha acids. There's so many humulones. Um, they all have a different perception of bitterness on the palate, um, and so that's a way more useful number. But the the problem is, it's a it's a it's not you know you'd have to pay a lot to, to have that done, and it's not some you know you know breweries have in house. So the IBU number is still I think very useful. Um, but it's um, it's not a good uh, value or a good target for uh, sensory bitterness. I think the problem is that people, I mean, let's face it, most of us are number geeks. We like to have numbers, uh, as you point out, for repeatability. And the IBU is useful for to a certain extent, but it misses out on a lot of things. And I had to go look it up and remind myself, but it's a high-performance liquid chromatography. Right, everyone knows that. But and uh, yeah, I think I think you start breaking people's brains if if we now suddenly required you know that sort of full analysis. I think right. even I think even most homebrewers would be shocked at just the difference between what they calculate their IBUs at, just the IBU number, versus what's actually measured in the beer, and that's hard enough for people to get their heads around. So, all right, so you, you talked uh, human loans right from dry hopping, but I think the two big categories now that now that everybody's trying to push as much hop aroma as they can. The, the two big categories that people have been spending more time talking about are, are terpenes and thiols. Yeah, I guess I would even uh, go back a little, one more step and say that the two bigger categories that were tested kind of prior to the, the thiol world were mm-hmm. most people were looking at um, hydro, uh, two different classes, yep. so hydrocarbons, and these are like your, your, your myrcene um, compounds like that are a little more uh, green, a little more resinous, woody in nature. 
and then the monoterpene alcohols, the terpenes. And these, these are a little more soluble. They have a little more staying power in beer. And these are the, the linalools, um, the, the slightly fruitier um, compounds in hops. And so that's, that's where a lot of the research has been over um, in recent memory has been looking at, you know, linalool, uh, you know, the, the compounds that they're actually measuring in the finished beer. Um, and so those monoterpene alcohols are one of those. And um, hydrocarbons are, are just very volatile. So um, like myrcene, for example, if you're adding that in the kettle, it, it, it's almost gone like that. Just, it's just the, um, the, the heat just removes it very quickly. Um, and hydrocarbons are actually um, playing a bigger role in hazy IPAs during dry hopping, just because it's just it, more recent research is showing that like just the, the thickness of these beers is actually helping to retain some of these otherwise more volatile compounds, um, which is why they can be a little greener sometimes. Um, so those are the two, two other compounds or two classes of compounds, I think, that are um, important to consider. Um, but now there's been a, a heavier focus on um, thiols. So thiols are actually um, sulfur compounds, but they're, they're very fruity um, sulfur compounds. And they're really important for some of these fruity American hops and some New Zealand and Australian hops. Um, they have a very low sensory threshold. So that means that you don't need a lot of this compound in order to taste it or smell it. Um, so you don't need much of it in the beer for it to make a difference. Um, and they're, they're finding, you know, again, like these, these American um, varieties are the ones that are having the, the biggest impact. And there's really three um, main thiols that are, are kind of being looked at. And you'll see them kind of, the names kind of interchange sometimes, but um, it's 3MH. So 3MH is a thiol that's uh, very grapefruit, grapefruit forward. Um, this is actually an interesting one because uh, unlike a lot of compounds, 3MH can actually increase um, with heat in the in the kettle, so you know, trying to use hops that are high in three MH as your bittering addition could, could be fun to play with. Um, you want to try to push as much three MH as possible into your uh, uh, hazy IPAs because three MH can actually be converted during fermentation to three MHA, which is a uh, passion fruit thiol. Um, and it, it, unfortunately there's a little more science involved into how exactly that happens. And you need certain enzymes that, that kind of help, um, uh, produce this effect. Um, unfortunately this is, uh, more like wine, wine yeast that have the ability to pr- produce these enzymes. Um, but you can, that's kind of a whole nother discussion, but we, you can purchase some of these enzymes if you want to try them. I was going to say, you just ran across one of Andy's questions uh, that had come up. Particular wine enzymes that you're talking about that you can purchase to try and do that conversion. Do you know of any names that are available to us at, at the Humber level? Yeah. I mean, so for, for the files, you're looking at um, an enzyme called beta betalase. Um, and so that's different than beta glucosidase. Um, there are two different enzymes. Um, that is a, a, the one that I've, I have and I play with um, is called, uh, it's actually from um, a company called Scott Labs, and it's uh, uh, Rapidase Expression Aroma, I believe. Um, and so it, it's, it just comes as like a little container and it's uh, just dry, like dry granules and you add you know, not much at all half a gram per, per five gallon batch or something. If you want to experiment with it, um, it, it's something we're doing at the brewery now a little bit more than, than we used. Mm-hmm. We still haven't used it on a, on a full, full size batch, but I'm actually working on a, a, 
kind of a, a scientific uh, collaboration with another local brewery where we're going to try to pull out all the bio transformation stops to see see if we can uh, have it make a difference. So that's that's the enzyme you can you can buy. Um, but otherwise, there's just you know bread is is capable of doing some of this. Um, if you're mm-hmm. doing some mixed firm beers, otherwise, uh, wine yeasts that are able to uh, naturally create this enzyme during fermentation. Um, one that I've really liked is is called Fin Seven. This is one again. I think I got that from from Scott Labs. But using wine yeast has, has been a, a tricky uh, experimentation process for me, just because even as five or ten percent of the yeast pitch can really have an impact on fermentation profile. Um, so despite trying to get those enzymes in, sometimes they can really create some phenolic flavors. So that's even something we've, we've experienced at, at Sapwood. It's amazing how five or 10% of, let's say, a Hefeweizen strain or a Belgian strain can really have a huge impact on, on, a, on a beer. Real quick, Andy followed up his uh, question there. He wanted to know the enzymes that you're talking about, that Rapidase, uh, I think you said from Scott, is that FDA grass? Do you have to do a special formulation? What do you mean? Well, so generally regarded safe, right? So for the FDA, when you do your uh, your recipe, do you can you just use it, or do you have to oh. do you have to put it in as a approval? I don't know. That's a question for Mike. <laughs> My, I'm lucky that Mike does all of our legal uh, legal and uh, accounting and uh, all, all that important uh, stay stay within the rule book work. Um, but that's that's a good question. We'll, have, we'll probably have to look into that. <laughs> Breaking the law, breaking the law. <laughs> uh, right. What's a, what's an easy way to summarize this? So the the hydrocarbons are sort of the classical compounds that we think about hops, like, you know, the things that make noble hops smell like, uh, you know, smell and taste like noble hops, although there's oxidation in there as well. Uh, the things that make, like, northern brewer taste like northern brewer. Mm-hmm. Right? Yep. Exactly. And then the monoterpenes, that's where we're getting more into, uh, would it be fair to say more like the things that make Cascade taste like Cascade? Yeah, I think that's where you're starting to, to get more of the compounds that are just, you know, that the more monoterpene alcohols are, are probably, uh, would be associated with like a, a fruitier uh, hop, hop character. And, and hydrocarbons, just like you said, are more of the, um, the traditional like kettle aroma, noble hop. And then, and then we get into this world of the thiols, and the thiols are more the things that make like galaxy, like galaxy, right? And more of those, more of those tropical passion fruit, as you said, mango, that that sort of aroma. Yep, and I think that's that's, um, and that's kind of been the same progression of where the mm-hmm. science is going. So it started with you know, hydrocarbons and monoterpene alcohols, mm-hmm. and then thiols, um, and now just more recently, um, there's been a. a, a stronger look at um, uh, hop drive uh, fatty acids and mm-hmm. other compounds on, on hops like uh, hop drive esters that can have an impact um, on, on beer too. So there's, that's kind of the new area combined with, um, with the, the other areas. And it's fun because a lot of the research is now showing that they all kind of work together. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the presence of certain thiols with certain monoterpene alcohols is, is reducing the threshold of each other. This, synergistic world of, of hop compounds really is starting to show that um, building in complexity of oils is, is probably a good a good way to try to boost overall flavor and aroma. Well, I was going to say, I know some people have tried to simplify this by like just looking at like total oil content, but it doesn't seem like that that is sophisticated enough to do this. Yeah, right? I mean, total oil just means it has a lot more of whatever it has. Um, and so it, it's really what what is the percentage of those oils, you know, which... 
you know, what percentage of those are, are dials that might have a positive contribution, which percentage of those are um, hop drive esters. Uh, 2MIB is, is the big hop drive esters as like an apricot flavor. Um, mm-hmm. Like Kill Melon is a high, high uh, producer of or uh, Southern Cross. And these are, you know, what percentage of, of that hop is, has that, uh, what percentage of, of a hop is, um, 3MH, what percentage is linalool? Um, what, and that's kind of where, uh, the research is going and, and we can talk about more of a, or Yakima chief just did some, I think really exciting research into what they call, um, survivable compounds. And I've sort of adopted that too, because I like it a lot. You know, there's a, a thousand plus compounds in hops, right? But let's, let's maybe focus on the, you know, five or six that we know are in finished beer and we know have an impact on overall flavor and aroma. Right. I, I'm just going to take a moment to, you know, break out my old man impression here is like going, you know, back in the day, hops were hops and you got bitterness from them. <laughs> um, but it, it is, I mean, it is amazing to see how much change you, you're seeing because, I mean, like you go back and you look at, if you go and like read Ron Pattinson and Martin and, and those guys who are pulling out old brewery logs, uh, you see stuff from like the 1880s and whatnot where they're talking, yeah, the hops are Californians and that's it, right? You know, so many, so many ounces or so many bushels of Californians per, per gallon or per, per barrel. And now, I mean, we're looking at all these different compounds. And I know this is very overwhelming because at least at the, the homebrew level, most, most of the time what we know about a hop is, or a particular hop pellet that we might buy in the store is, this is the alpha acid level. So like all of these different pieces, and if we're lucky, we know the total oil content as well. So like, as a homebrewer for all these different pieces, the hydrocarbons versus the terpenes versus the thiols versus the fatty acids versus esters and all that, how do we navigate, negotiate, and figure that out? Or is it just a learning process still? Yeah, that's a good question. I think it's very much still a learning, learning process. In fact, um, I'm, I'm supposed to sit on a, on a, a, a panel coming up with uh, Yakima Chief to just sort of explore this more because they're interested to know what brewers are interested in, right? So, like, where should they be focusing their study because this is all still new to them. But what should brewers or, or home brewers know? I think it's um, – I tried to write a, a blog post a couple uh, – I don't know when I actually wrote that a couple weeks ago. I'm just trying my best to, to break down a lot of this latest research and then just telling you, all right, here's all the science, but – Hey, here's ten. Here's ten hops that are high in all this stuff. So, you know, if, if you're not, if you don't really care about why this is happening, um, experiment with these ten hops in, in the whirlpool and and see if you can tell. See, see. So, so the idea is, you know, these these hops are uh, higher in uh, what they call these these survivables, right? So, um, if you're loading up your whirlpool with hops that um, have these compounds that are sticking around longer in the process, you should have um, more hop flavor in the beer. Um, and so that's, you know, I, I, there's a list of, of hops. I'm sure we can go, go through some of them if you want in the research. I don't know how technical you well, want to get. We, we, I mean, look, it's a bunch of nerds here and plus, you know, why not? And now you'll need to wait two more weeks for the second half of that segue. In the meanwhile, thank you everyone for joining us on another episode of the brew files. We hope that you enjoyed this background into hop chemistry and what you need to start paying attention to for a better hop experience. In part two, we'll dig into even more practical notions of what you can try to improve your hop character. Now remember, if you have show ideas, styles, brewers, techniques, ingredients, etc., you can drop us a line at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. You can reach us at denny at experimentalbrew.com or drew at experimentalbrew.com. 
You can find us on Twitter at EXP Brewing, on Instagram, on Facebook, on Reddit, and just about every homebrew forum out there. And of course, you can always find us at www.experimentalbrew.com. Don't forget, you can support the podcast by leaving us a review in Apple Podcasts, click the AHA, Amazon, Brewers Friends, or BYO links on the website, and by going to Patreon and pledging a buck or two or more to our channel because, which for this part of the year is still being decided, we're still trying to find a good nationwide organization that will kind of help do some relief for brewery workers or restaurant workers, you know, the people who are out there serving us every day. Until next time, remember the brew is out there, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Brew Files. This episode is brought to you by Brewers Publications, publisher of Historical Brewing Techniques, the lost art of farmhouse brewing. Purchase your copy of Historical Brewing Techniques at brewerspublications.com. Brewers Publications.